Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Do you ever notice that church is like obsessed with food? Like all of our things are about food, right? Like it's, it's kind of a thing. We come by it naturally though, because I think Jesus was a little obsessed with food too. So we, we learned from the best when it came to eating. Uh, there are so many stories in the Gospels of Jesus eating. Like he eats at surprising people's houses, he eats at normal people's houses. Uh, He invites himself over to people's houses and he's invited over to people's houses. Like he does it all at other people's houses. Do you notice he never cooks though? I'm not saying that he couldn't. I'm just saying he chose to not, right? Uh, A lot of us might agree with that statement. I can cook, I just choose to not cook. Well, there's one story, maybe two, depending on how you spread it out, uh, where Jesus actually makes the meal for everybody else. And that's when he feeds an epically large group of people. And so in Matthew 14, we're told that he's talked for so long that he's worried about the nutritional levels of the people that are sitting there listening to him, uh, and that his disciples are worried about their nutritional levels. He's worried that they're going to faint if they walk home, that they won't be able to make it, because, I mean, that's a pretty long sermon if you think about it, but like, that's what happens. They're like, I don't think people can make it home, Jesus, if you don't give them some food right now. So he has to come up with something on the fly. Thanks to a uh, very nice, naive preteen boy, he is given a very, very small amount of food to feed a small town. Uh, And so he takes that and he says, don't worry, guys, I can do this. I got it. And, you know, again, not saying Jesus can't cook, but the level of worry that the disciples had about him doing anything around food does make you wonder a little bit like what his cooking ability was. But he's like, guys, guys, I got this. And so he takes it and he prays about it. He prays over it. And then he starts serving and they have enough food out of like nothing to feed an entire village. Like it was a pretty amazing story. Like a pitiful amount feeds an entire town. Jesus didn't host many dinners, but when he did, he was prepared and he was generous. He was ready to go and he was generous. Those were the two things that I would say marked his hosting. And Romans 12, 13 says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. To those in the early church who would have spoke Greek, they would have heard this word hospitality. And what it meant to them specifically was that it it means welcoming the stranger. So opening up your life to somebody who you don't know, who's not a part of your community, who's not a part of your life, and giving them space in your life. Not just welcoming them into your house, but giving them actual space in your life. And Rich Volotis wrote this, that hospitality is not simply the opening of our homes, it's the opening of our hearts to one another. Hospitality requires a posture of welcome. It's a way of saying that you belong here, It's a way of saying that it's good that you are here. You belong, and it's good that you're here. You know, before coming to this church, Sarah and I were in Providence, Rhode Island, attempting to start a church. And when you're uh, trying to start a church, it is funny how much you have to convince people that you're legit because you don't have, like, a pay stub to show or a building to walk them to. So you're like, no, really? 
I'm a pastor, wink, wink, you know, like, and you're like, no, but seriously, I'm not trying to be creepy, just come over to my house tonight, you know, like, it's, it's actually kind of a difficult thing when you're, when you're at that stage, there's a lot of convincing to do, um, but we had some, like, really great people join us for, for those seasons of life, and when, what we would do is we always, we were hosting, like, all the time, we were having people come over, and so it was pretty regular that we would do what I'm getting ready to do right now. We would have to get out the tea. You know, we would get food from the bakery down the street. Providence was like perfect for some of these things. It was like just as like hipstery as I wanted to be. It was great. Uh, we would make coffee uh, and serve it to people. Uh, we would have bread and donuts and cookies. And who wouldn't want to come over to our house at that point, right? It was pretty awesome. And, and we got to do life with really great people. There were people who would come over for small group uh, who were kind of in a good way, not in a bad way, but in a, in a really good way, just desperate to do life together. I think of people like David and Charlie and Robert and Jane and Matt that would come over weekly to our house. Uh, there were people who became friends like uh, Rinma and James and Megan, we actually got to do their meal at their wedding. So that's kind of a unique thing. So I can cook. I just choose not to, right? You know, uh, I, I was thinking about this and I remembered like we hosted Alpha one time at a church around the corner from where we lived. Do you know how many people showed up? One. One young woman walked in and saw us sitting there and I can only imagine what went through her head at that moment. But we tried our best to host her as well as we can. I think she actually may have came twice. So hey, that's not too bad, right? We weren't too creepy. That, that was good. Uh, we were able to, to invite her in. Uh, that was nice. Uh, we would do uh, parties. We didn't have much outdoor space at our apartment. And so we would do parties at the park that was down the street from us. And so we'd carry all of our stuff, you know, the grill and all the food and everything. And we'd go down and, uh, and the dog probably, cause that just makes everybody happier. And we would go down the street to this park and host parties there for people. Uh, and it was just pretty, it was pretty fun. I, I couldn't tell you like, unfortunately, like epic stories of, you know, huge miracles happening. But I could tell you lots of stories of people doing something kind of extraordinary, which is that they just chose to do life together for like no reason other than Jesus, right? That was the only reason that they would choose to be with us at that point in the game. And in Acts chapter two, we're told about the early church and we're given examples of what the church did together as they started building this community. And we're told in Acts 2.42 some of the things that they would do. And let me read this to you. It says that all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions, shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. 
They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Two things are repeated over and over that they did together, that they shared together. Meals and money. Those were the things that they shared the most often in that early church. You know, the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion, depending on your church affiliation uh, and what they choose to call it, is this meal. It's this meal uh, of bread and of juice or wine, again, depending on your church affiliation, that we're called to take to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made that day on the cross. And the What's interesting is that almost every single writing that we have from the first hundred years of the church, they mention taking the Lord's Supper together. Like every single one. It's kind of like you learn a lot what matters to people when you see what it is that they feel like they need to document. And all of the early church writers documented that they took this meal together regularly as a part of doing life together. And you would have found a table like this with random stuff for people to drink, people to eat, and with the communion elements all mingled together, interspersed, separate, and then ready to come together at the appropriate moment to be separated when is necessary. And it's this meal that Jesus laid out for his disciples when he gathered them all together the night before he died, that he told them, like, do this in remembrance of me, take this meal. And it's this place where walls would break down in the early church. It's a place where everybody was equal, where everybody received the same thing, where everybody had access and could come and sit together and join together, where, where tax collectors would sit next to Pharisees, where slaves would sit next to their owners and be fed the exact same food, where the rich and the poor would be joined together and they would serve each other, not just be served. That's what happened at this table and all were invited in and it was shocking. There was one Jewish historian who said that among Jews in Jesus' day, who you ate with was as important as what you ate and how you ate. Who you ate with mattered a lot. But it wasn't just the Israelites, the Jewish folks who were shocked and amazed and maybe a little appalled by what was going on at this table. The Gentiles also had their status that they were worried about. And Scott McKnight says that everyone was ranked by status in the Roman Empire, with the wealthy getting the best dishes, the best food, the best wine. And against this backdrop, the gatherings of the Christians reconstructed everything from the bottom up. Everyone was welcome. Everyone got the same meal. Everyone was equal. Everyone had one Lord, King Jesus. At this table, they were one. The spot that unified a group of people just starting out and following Jesus was right here when they would take the bread and they would pass around the cup. The spot where community was made one was right here. This was the spot where it happened. You know, in verse 46, Luke tells us that they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. 
Generosity actually means sincere hearts, which means that it's not a numerical word. It's a character statement. Generosity isn't about numbers. It's about character. Sincere hearts. As Ajith Fernando said, this signified an open-hearted attitude where there is no pretense and performance in the way that they behaved. Listen again to Romans 12, to what Paul wrote. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. What's powerful here, I think, is that for the early church, hospitality and generosity are so connected. They're like intertwined. It's almost like you can't have one without the other. Generosity for the early church means coming to a meal together and having room for every single person so that there's none in need. Let me read from Acts 4.32 a couple of ridiculous statements. Uh, The Bible has a lot of those, if you haven't noticed, uh, to get us going this morning. Here's what it says. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything that they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Did you pick up the two ridiculous statements in this that we would probably like start getting sarcastic and cynical about in our head if I was to say them out loud right now about our community? All the people were united. That's the first one. In heart and mind. All. Every single one of them. Now, if you're... Does anybody like a good argument? Anybody fit into that category and you're willing to admit it a little bit? You're like, I like to think, keep things a little spicy. Sometimes, you know, if everybody's getting along too well, I'll like toss something in there to kind of mess with them. You know, like there's probably a few of us. Jose is one of those. I know that. Uh, <laughs> I like to keep it a little spicy there. You know, it's good. Uh, so everybody having the same like heart and mind may sound like a little boring. Like, where's the fun in that? We like a little bit of diversity in, in our beliefs. But what if that was true about the church today? Like big C, not, not just us, but like the whole church. What if we were all truly united in heart and mind? How would that affect our world? What would that change? It would change a lot of things. I'll just say that much. It would change a whole lot of things. All were united in that way. How would the world be different? The word community means to come together in unity. And Ruth Haley Barton, she's one of my favorite authors, she wrote that we the church are called to be unified by our commitment to be transformed in Christ's presence through the work of the Holy Spirit so that we can discern and do the will of God as we are guided by the Spirit. We're called to come together unified in our commitment to be transformed by Jesus through the Holy Spirit to do what it is that God's calling us to do. A simple statement with tremendous potential. What if it was true? We know what happened 
in the church in Jerusalem when this was true. Because uh, we're told, and it's the second ridiculous statement. There were no needy people among them. Zero needy people in their community. Can you imagine that? I mean, just think about that. A generosity that eliminates need. Like, that's what Luke's telling us right here. That's out there. Generosity that completely eliminates need. You know, people have been so upset by that verse throughout the years in the church that they've tried to downplay it. Like, in every generation, there's been this, like, we need to make sure that people don't think that that's actually what we have to do all the time. Like, we don't have, like, you know, like, okay, so it's in the Bible, so there's that, you know, but, like, it's not realistic. There's just, you know, it... Maybe it's good for 30 people, but it, there's no way we could do it with larger numbers. Or, or the, the common one has been commun, communism. Like, these are communists. Like, you know, like, that's not actually what's going on here either, you know. Then there's a little bit of like, well, if they choose to live this way, that's fine. But it's not a command. So, don't you be telling me that I need to go do that. Like... Like, that's been the response of people throughout the last 2,000 years when they've read this. Not like shock and awe, but like shock and, oh crap, throw the wallet away real fast. Like, uh, that's been what we've gone for. But what's being offered here is this way of living life that frees us from selfishness and that gives us confidence that we will be supported when we are in need. Does that sound good? That sounds amazing to me. Think how much less anxiety and stress you would have if we were living this way because you know that you're in a community that's going to care for you when you're in a spot that you need cared for. Imagine that. These two examples of generosity are given following these outlandish statements about these people, Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira. And I want to read these stories here and starting in verse 36 so follow along with me for instance there was joseph the one the apostles nicknamed barnabas which means son of encouragement he was from the tribe of levi and he came from the island of cyprus he sold a field he owned and he brought the money to the apostles but there was a certain man named ananias who with his wife sapphira sold some property he, bought, he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming that it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wish. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died, and everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some of the young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. 
When the young men came in and saw she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Not one of the most popular sections to be talked about for obvious reasons. Um, and no, I don't know how they died. And I see no following examples of this happening. So we'll just leave those ones alone, right? Uh, I'm not, uh, I, I do not believe that I can uh, say something and then somebody will die. Like th- this is a unique instance and we'll leave that part where it is. But Barnabas, let's talk about him first. After this, he became a very influential figure in the church. He was the one who mentored Paul. Uh, He brought Paul with him to Antioch. Uh, He gave him opportunities to lead. He went on his first uh, mission trip with him throughout Asia and Europe. Uh, And, you know, honestly, the only bad thing ever said about Barnabas, like, is that he gave people too many options, too many opportunities, too many chances. Like, that's really, he seems like a very good guy who keeps giving people chances to prove themselves and to live out the calling that Jesus has placed on their life. He seems pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, I think we would probably all like Barnabas quite a bit, but at this point, he, he's just Joseph, uh, a Jewish guy from Cyprus, a Levite from Cyprus. So what does this mean? Well, being from Cyprus Cyprus, implied that he was a Hellenistic Jew, uh, which meant that he uh, spoke Greek and that he would have kept to some Greek practices in how he lived life. And he didn't live in Israel, which meant that some of the like snobbier folks in Israel would have looked down at him for the way that he was living. They would have thought that he wasn't pure enough. They would have had an issue with certain things about, about Barnabas. But being a Levite puts an interesting spin on this. Because in the Old Testament, we're told that the Levites are not allowed to own property. So, that's interesting, right? You know, they have to rely on, because they, they helped in the temple, they, they assisted the priests, and so they got paid, basically provided for out of what was given to the temple, to, to uh, you know, as offerings to God. And so here we have Barnabas who owns a piece of land, which means two things. One, it means somewhere along the line, his family decided, you know, that that was like 5,000 years ago. I'm not sure that I need to still live by that rule anymore. I'm going to do something else. Maybe that's what it is. If they kept to that rule, though, then it means that Barnabas, the only way that he could have owned a piece of land was his burial plot which is super intriguing to me what if Barnabas heard about the need in the church and said I don't have a lot but I do have a burial plot and so I'm going to sell it so that I can give it so that these people can be cared for what if that's what was going on again I can't prove it I just know that those are the only two options. But the way that Luke tells us about Barnabas throughout the rest of Acts leads me to think that Barnabas was not necessarily a wealthy man, but he was definitely a generous man. He definitely was generous in how he lived. So now we come to Ananias and Sapphira. In verse 3, Peter says again, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit. You kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. 
And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. You weren't lying to us, but to God. Peter does us a favor here, and he clarifies things. The command was not there. You are not commanded to sell anything. You are not commanded to give away everything. There is a need, and I'm sure it was put out there for people to give if they were able to. These people need food. They need a place to stay. If you're willing, give out of that. There was an awareness of that, but there was no pressure to give. Ananias could have given 10% of the property value, and it would have been considered generous. He could have given 5% of the property value, and it would have been considered generous. There was, he could have given 95% and kept 5% and nobody would have batted an eye. There was no requirement that he gives everything. So why would you lie about something that's voluntary? Why would you lie when it's not required? Nobody's asking you. They're not making you sign anything saying you gave it all. Like there's nothing, no pressure on you to give at all. The sin was not in keeping the money. It was in lying to God. That was where he went wrong. And before we go down the, you know, purely Satan made me do it path. Yes, Peter acknowledges that he was influenced by Satan. A better word for influenced would be tempted. Temptations, though, aren't choices. They're options. When you're tempted, you have an option. You have a path that you could go down. You're not forced down that path. He didn't have to go down the route that Satan was tempting him to go down. He had a choice. And he chose to go the way that he went. They're not the final word. They're options. That's what temptations are. You know, teaching people about money, about these sorts of things, as I'm sure at this point Peter was learning, you know, early days, like uh, not probably the best object lesson that he wanted to give on how to be generous. Um, but like, it, it can be a little tricky. If you have kids or if you grew up in the church, you may have had a conversation that, that goes something like this. You know, you give your kids an allowance. They're younger. And you're like, here you go, Marcus. Here's $5. Good job this week. And they go, oh, thanks, Dad. Now, I want you to give 50 cents of that to the church. Why? Well, because, you know, we need to give, uh, you know, to, to God, like be generous with our money. I, I kind of want to just keep the 50 cents. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. Well, the Bible says that you need to give this money. And so like the Bible says that it, that it needs to happen. Okay. So whose money is it? Because I just saw you take it out of your wallet. So why are we pretending like it's God's money? I don't understand where your logic is in, in this instance. You know, like, I, I think I'm just going to keep this 50 cents and call it a day. And then basically at that point, you're like, look, kid, I'm not giving you an allowance next week if you don't put that two quarters in that box. Like, we're calling it a day. Like, it's hard. And then they look at you and they're like, but dad, God gave it to me. Like, I mean, you know, talking about this stuff is tricky. It, it, it's complicated. And teaching it to adults is even harder. Like, it's hard because we have 
patterns of living with our money that we don't like to be messed up, right? We don't enjoy not having the money. And then we have bills to pay, and you know where it goes. You know, for all the great stories of God providing when people have been generous to give, which is awesome and true and amazing, there are an equivalent number of people that's experiences are not so cause and effect. That it's not like I gave and then God provided for me. I don't know, maybe a few of us can connect with that in the room. You know, I've been giving to the church most of my life and I couldn't give you a clear, because I was generous and gave, God cared for me and provided for me story. Like I could try, but it would not be clear. It would not be succinct. And you would be like, that's stretching it. You know, like it wouldn't be the best story that you've ever heard. And that's okay. Because the Bible doesn't say that if we're generous, then God will be generous. That's not what's in there at all. It says that everything belongs to God. It says God will take care of us says that we're told to give without expectation that we're going to get anything back. It says to give freely because we've been given freely. It says to give with joy. It says that if we sow, we can expect to reap, but if you've ever sowed seeds, you realize that, you know, forecasting based on a harvest is a pretty tough trick to pull. Like, you know, you don't always get everything that you sow. Like, it doesn't usually equal a one for one. We're told that we're supposed to give as an act of worship to God because he's given so freely to us. We're told that God is generous, and then he says that we need to be generous. That's what the Bible says about giving. And so when I look at these stories, I don't necessarily think that Ananias and Sapphira were greedy. I think that their hearts were looking for the wrong thing. And I don't think that they actually knew Jesus. Because if they would have known Jesus, I don't think they would have played this game. I don't think that their heart was sincere in how that they were being Generous. When I look at the main difference between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, I think generosity and sincerity of heart is what separated the gift that was accepted and the gift that was rejected. Because one gift was given out of a, a desire to care for those in need, and the other gift was given out of a desire to look good in front of people that they wanted to impress. It would be easy to just stand here and say, you know, Barnabas was stronger than them. He was just a better person than them. But I don't think we should be so quick to go down that sort of a path. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this once. He said, every Christian community must know that not only do the weak need the strong, but also that the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of community. What does he mean? Here's what I think he means. The line between the strong and the weak is not a line between me and you. It's a line down the middle of me. Because on Monday, I might be strong. And Tuesday, I might be really weak. 
in January, I might be able to give generously. And in July, I'm in a place of desperate need. That's reality. That's life. That's humanity. We don't cut a line between us. We acknowledge that we are strong and we are weak and we need Jesus and we need the community that he's placed us in. And that's the beauty of the church because it's a community of both strong and weak people who acknowledge that reality, who give extravagantly when they can and who vulnerably ask for what it is that they need when they are in positions of need because the church at its best is full of people who aren't worried about looking good but about coming together unified in our commitment to be transformed by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the church at its best. And I love seeing this lived out. You know, I could give loads of stories of ways that our church has lived this out, which is really fun and exciting. And I won't give all the specifics because obvious reasons, but like I I was thinking of things like, you know, a couple years ago when Rob brought up that there was a church in Spain that had some needs during lockdown. And so we gathered an offering and we sent it over and they were able to start a food pantry uh, for their community during that time. I could give lots of examples of, of people providing housing for people when they were in desperate spots, of people giving to the church. And so we're able to give gas cards and, and groceries and pay for car repairs and, and help cover rent when people are in desperate spots. You know, like this was just kind of a fun, like easy yes. But this year there was a high school student who was without a place to live for the last week before graduation. And we heard about it, and I was like, yes. Called up the hotel. Hey, his room's paid for until graduation. Like, that's just fun. We get to love on people in our community in generous ways so that they can live good lives. Like, that's great. That's what the church looks like. We want to live into that. And I think that we are a church that creates space. There's room for people to come. Not just because there's a few empty seats, but we create space for people here. You know, I, I think that that's how we live. New people are welcomed in, and I see this regularly. You know, I, I see people who, who come who are just really loved as they are, and then, because this is what we have to do at the church, they're linked arms with, and they're walked towards greater health and transformation, because that's what we do as followers of Jesus. This is who we are as a church. One theologian said that the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday. It's a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there could be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history group of people who live so radically different that there can be no explanation other than the cross that we worship somebody who came and died so that we could be reconnected with him who lived again so that we are reconnected with him and our lives are transformed because of that reality Friends, this morning, I hope that you recognize that what I'm talking about isn't nice if it happens. It's not a secondary thing, but it's what we're called to do and to be as followers of 
Jesus. It's how we live out bringing the kingdom of God into our community in practical and powerful ways. So let's be a people who actively create space for people to move from me to we as the family of God. Let's live this out together. Let's stand. We're going to pray. Then we're going to worship. And then we're going to do communion. Then we're going to worship some more. And then we'll see where we go, right? Hey, you know, it's a party. We'll see what happens. Jesus, I thank you that you are a God who died to show what sacrifice looks like and to enact real change in our world and in our lives. I thank you that you're a king who took off your robe so that you could wash feet. That you're a a savior who broke bread and passed around a cup so that we could understand why it is that you are getting ready to do what it is that you are getting ready to do. And I thank you that you're so relational, that you didn't just do life by yourself and then went home by yourself, but you invited us to join you. You invited 12 and then 120 and then more to come and join you in doing life together. And I pray for us as a community of your followers that we'll learn to live life in the same way that you did, living out the things that you've invited us to do, that you've commanded us to do. And I pray during this time of worship that we'll encounter you. We just say, come Holy Spirit and move. This is your space. In Jesus' name. Thank mm-hmm. you.